This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Book Burners, Season 2, Episode 26. Three. Nobody listened to the prosecutor's closing argument. Onlookers packed the seats and aisles and wall spaces, and their breath soured the air, but no one wanted to hear why Asante was guilty. They had made up their minds on that question, and no evidence, no discussion of stolen artifacts or society duties or proper procedure or the dangers of magic and demonic possession would change them. The archivist was guilty. Why belabor the point? They had come to hear her speak. And so, after half a day of unnecessary retrenchment, they got what they wanted. The church made you, Asante said, to protect people. The church built this society because you were the best option in a grim age. You closed magic away because you could, and because you did not dare to use it. Robes shifted as legs shifted beneath them. Cloth roughed over stone needed the courtroom silence, and the squeak of leather leavened it. The world has changed in two ways. We know more than we once knew. The 15th century is over. That's a good thing. We have tools of science and mathematics and philosophy, and we've applied so few of those tools to the knowledge beneath our feet. Are there angels? What do the creatures of magic know of God? Is the world of magic supernature or merely a different nature? We don't know the answers to these questions, and yet the answers are knowable. The church sponsors science, research into cosmology, into quantum physics, into the origins of the universe. Why regard this aspect of the world as evil? Just because a bunch of 15th century Europeans believed it was? It's dangerous, yes. So we need to understand it. I've worked this year to understand it, and I use that knowledge in Belfast. Horrible things happened, but even more horrible things would have happened if we hadn't used magic. She brought her hands together and the sound echoed. We have reached the point where we can study magic without dying. And more important, we have long passed the moment when we could close magic away. Look at yourselves. You have been run ragged the last two years. That's not because our resources were cut. That's not because we lost political support. There is more magic in the world than there was two years ago. The tide is rising and we were not paying attention. So the network made books, something unprecedented as far as we know. The hand infiltrated the Vatican and action equally without precedent. How many more unprecedented events need to become precedented before we admit that the world is changing beyond our power to manage? We cannot lock magic in a box and hope it goes away anymore. We cannot fight it without understanding it. She turned to face the judges. A fox glowered from the bench but said nothing. We need to stop pretending we're fine while the world burns outside our door. 
Archivist Asante, Fox said, are you changing your plea? No, Asante replied. I have betrayed no one. I have served this society and my office better than any of you. The question your decision will answer is this. What does it mean to keep faith? To hold with our traditions and betray a world? Or to let ourselves change and keep that world alive? She sat. No one breathed. The audience stayed, watching, long after the judges bid them go. When Manchu reached Monsignor Fox's office, he found the man pacing in fury while Tavani Shaw sat behind his desk, legs crossed, watching with the impassivity of a woman who'd known too many drill sergeants to be disturbed by a rant. She saw Manchu waiting by the door. Fox did not have any idea the kind of position she's putting us in, though of course she knows it's the sheer overweening perversity of her that startles. Manchu knocked and Fox broke off his tirade and whirled on him, robes flaring. Shaw tried not to smile, but she didn't make a very good go at it. Monsignor, Menchu said. Father. Fox closed his eyes and folded his arms. He was a big man, and folding his arms took a long time. Menchu and the Team One Monsignor had never been close. Fox kept his business to himself and put out the bureaucratic fires while his team started real ones. They had spent too many meetings arguing about Asante's new direction and the society's mission. But he ran a good team. What can I do for you? As Manchu searched for words, Shaw stood and excused herself. She shut the door behind her. Manchu could not read the last look she traded with him. Closed, the office felt very quiet. He wondered if Fox soundproofed his office. What did he discuss here that he didn't want the rest of the society to know? This office too, been bugged by team two? Interesting questions, but distractions now. Santi's right, Manchu said. Fox stood like a wall. Do you drink, father? Sometimes, not now. Permit me, then. A shelf beside Fox's desk held a crystal decanter and two lowball glasses. He held the decanter to the light, judged its contents pleasing, and poured just enough to amber the bottom of his glass. Manchu smelled peat and smoke without a hint of sweetness. You're certain? When Manchu didn't respond, he lifted the glass to his nose and inhaled. I can't drink much, I don't drink much, but I used to, and I remember the smell. You know the trouble with poison? Manchu didn't answer. He remembered the smell of burning human flesh and a yacht on fire, and remembered Sal asking him why. There were other memories too, Bouchard's team riding into battle against the tornado eaters, Shaw ordering her knights to stand down. But he still smelled flesh and hair and crisped skin. The human nose and the human tongue, Fox said, aren't so effective as a dog's, but they work well enough. We've spent hundreds of thousands of years learning to recognize deadly flavors and odors found in nature. You read these books, right, about Italy and the Renaissance, and everyone's going around poisoning everyone else, and nobody can smell or taste it, and those books are full of crap. Poison didn't work like that until recently. Not until we could find the things that kill you and take away the stuff that makes them taste like they could. He drank the glass clean. Are you sure you don't want some? The topics made me nervous. Father, do you really think I would poison you? I think you're coming to a point. He smiled then for the first time, and so briefly Manchu might have imagined the curl of lip. Fox's rage had receded. In the dim office, he looked grim, sedate, respectable. Manchu had known too many grim, sedate, respectable men to trust another. The office, for all its dark wood paneling and appearance of opulent age, smelled like nothing 
and stone under the nothing, and peat, and smoke, fading already. She isn't wrong, father, that's the real killer. If she was wrong, we could kick her out, have a good laugh about that speech, and get on with our lives and our work. But the world is changing. We're all scared. Fox stilled after he said that word. Menchu did not think he said it often. The Monsignor, head bowed, contemplated his glass. Quit her then, Menchu said. Listen to her. There's an idea. Fox set the glass down and completed his orbit of the desk. A folder lay spread on an ink blotter that didn't look to have ever seen use. Menchu recognized the list, though the type was too small to read from this angle. He had seen the charges laid against Asante with his own eyes, reviewed each one, and for all their histrionics, found them accurate. And if we do, if we embrace her vision, then what? We run into this new world without discipline, without accountability. What's our mission as an organization if we do that? What does the society stand for if not protecting people? He drummed the fingers of his left hand on his desk. You mean, what do you stand for? Fox said nothing. Team One has an ugly job. Your people kill monsters mostly, but in our line of work, it can be hard to tell the difference between a monster and something in the wrong place at the wrong time. If we change, what does that say about blood on your hands? He risked the play, but he risked it wrong. Fox smiled. Nah, that's not what bugs me. Don't get me wrong, I see why you think it would, father. Saving is your job. My people don't have the luxury. When my guys go out, they go because we've exhausted all the other options. We have blood on our hands, yes, soldiers tend to. His fingers stopped drumming. We can know more about magic than we ever knew before, today. There's more of it out there, I don't deny it, and I don't deny we have to grow to meet that challenge, but magic worries me. The more we know, the farther and faster we run, the greater the risk that we cause a problem we can't control. Asante's a good woman, she's brilliant. But she could be the one to feed us poison we can't smell or taste. So we help her, Menchu said. We watch her and we control her. Fox laughed, which Menchu also doubted he often did. You, father, control her. You and Aunt Julie and your whole team, you've never yet succeeded in controlling Dr. Asante. To be fair, that wasn't your job. You worked with her, and until Verano fucked everything up, the protocols and limits of your work were clear. If we pardon her, she'll run roughshod over you both, and no one will notice it's a problem until the whole damn world's in flames. So my choice is blocked in. Let her go, and the world burns. Sentence her, and the society breaks at the seams. This was where Aunt Julie would have asked, what would you do in my place? Fox didn't. So, father, you wanted to convince me she was right? I'm way ahead of you, for all the good it does. Now, if you don't mind, I'm still up to my neck in paperwork after Belfast, and I'd like to get some sleep tonight. Was there anything else? No, Menchu said. You've uh, given me a lot to think about. And he wanted a drink, somewhere private and far away from Fox's office. A little camera rested in the corner of the long hall that led to Asante's cell, and that little camera watched everything that happened between the cell door and the door to the society's Vatican sub-basement. A small green light indicated the camera was watching, though there wasn't much to watch. A narrow stone hallway with two guards standing outside the entrance to the cell. 
One stood at Martinet attention, rifle inspection ready. The other checked a text message on his smartwatch. The door opened, and the overhead lights died. Darkness filled the hall, save for a floodlight illuminating the silhouette of an enormous woman, hooded and cloaked, one arm raised in an imperious gesture. The smartwatch guards shouted wordless warning, rifles were drawn. The camera's small green light blinked off. Two men screamed, and their screams ceased in an electric buzz, followed by a chemical silence. The lights flicked on again. Grace stood over the fallen guards, capping a syringe and returning it to her jacket pocket. Sal closed the door behind her, shucked off the hooded cloak, and traded her nine-inch platform heels for bare feet. She ran down the hall, carrying the cloak wrapped around the shoes. The archivist was reading in bed. She regarded them wordlessly through the bars over the horizon of the dun. I'm not going with you. Grace rolled her eyes. See? Sal grabbed the keys from her and tried the lock. Of course you're coming with us. You appear to have been smart about this thing, haven't burned any bridges behind you, and oh my, is that a maitress costume? Homemade version, Grace said. The shoes set Sal back a little. She doesn't own many pumps. Sal cursed the seventh key and tried the eighth. I'll have to tell her if our paths ever cross again. They will, Sal said. We're sending you to her as soon as we get you out of the Vatican. She spent a few hundred years evading society capture, and you seem to be on good terms, so... Asante closed the dun and drew back her covers. She wore a green nightgown and had her hair in a kerchief. Questing feet found her slippers, and she stood with the book by her side. How did you plan to get me out of the society, let alone the city? Easily. Keys, keys, keys. Whoever would have possibly needed so many? It's not like there were that many cells in this goddamn place. Though maybe there were other prisons elsewhere within the society. Who knew what secret Sansoni hid or Team Two had hidden before her? What doors there might be that no one had entered since Team Four left? We have three hours before the guards change shift, and we have an escape route figured. This place was built to keep people out, not in. Asante smiled. I really do appreciate this, Sal. Grace, it's kinder than I can say, but I'm not leaving. Grace slumped in the metal chair by the bars. Sal was running out of keys. You have to go, they're coming for you, and we can't stop them. Oh, Asante said, I know, that was the plan. You're suicidal. I'm not, I am willing to be a martyr if that's what's needed. My affairs are in order. But it's more likely they'll kick me out or possibly send me to prison for a while for theft or something of that sort. In which case, I'll leave with a smile on my face and do my time and move on with my life, having done what I could do to save people who don't want to be saved. There were no more keys. Sal, furious, tried the first again and turned it harder this time. The rusted lock gave, and she pulled the barred door open. At least she tried. Asante caught the bars and would not let her open the cell. Sal cursed and let the bars go. I'm not leaving. You have kids, for Christ's sake. And you know as well as I do, this society won't give you a slap on the wrist. Not after this. The archivist's eyes were level and fierce and stronger than the cell bars. I do have children and grandchildren. My children are adults and my husband loves me and I've met all my grandchildren. I did not become the archivist planning to grow old here. I've always known this job might kill me. Fuck. So, she said, I made my case. I gave the society decades. They know that. And the harder they move against me, the more they break themselves. The organization might not die in a day after I'm gone, but it won't last. And when the horses are finished eating one another, there will be a better society. One ready to do the job they hired us for. Grace checked her watch. We're running out of time. I'll be fine, Asante said. 
I thought this through back at the beginning. Not the details, of course, the network and all that. They were a surprise. But when I started pushing the society's limits, I knew a day would come when they push back. I've prepared. The one thing I can't allow is for magic to spirit me away in the dead of night. That would prove every suspicion Fox and his retrogrades have ever entertained. I'm sorry for the risk I put you through by not making you promise not to try something like this. I didn't realize... Uh, she stopped to catch her breath and close her eyes and did not open them again or speak until her eyes were dry and her voice level. I knew you cared. I should have credited how much. Thank you, from the bottom of my heart. But I have to ask you to leave. Sal tugged the bars again. Asante braced herself and would not let them go. Sal ran scenarios. They could overpower Asante, carry her through the society. Moving with the captive was harder than moving with a willing escapee, but with Grace, she could manage. Sal, Asante said, please, this is hard enough. No matter what happens, the society or whatever takes its place will need you and Grace and Liam and Arturo. Let me do what I have to do. Christ. Sal felt Asante's strength through the bars. She was stronger. She let the other woman guide the cell door closed and let the latch engage. What will we do with Bozo and Chuckles in the hall? Asante shrugged. I'll tell them someone offered me freedom and I did not accept. It has the advantage of truth. Asante, Sal didn't have other words. Grace watched them both. I don't suppose either of you brought a book. A brother can only stand so much done. She tested the door's latch, found it stable. Shame, but it was a slim chance anyway. Sal watched her through the bars. Go, Sal. That sedative won't last forever. I imagine Liam's waiting for you both and wondering what's gone wrong. You don't want him to worry himself to death? Some days I wonder. Asante laughed. Thank you. And I'll see you around. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. <laughs> 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hilary Sansoni answered the door in pink silk pajamas with her hair in a towel and a cup of licorice tea in her hand. Behind her lay her apartment, finished in plush and cream. Perfectly anonymous bookshelves squatted at the room's edges, featuring rows of small porcelain and pewter figurines, mostly dancers. Three art books lay on the low glass tabletop next to the plush cream sofa, one of which was open to a spread of Herculaneum murals. Arturo, she said, to what do I owe the pleasure? Manchu felt battered and weary after the day, and after a half hour spent pacing in Sansoni's building's lobby under the doorman's glare as he pieced together the words he'd use. As soon as he got the logic clear in his head, it clouded again. I want you to understand, he said. I'm doing this for her. I don't care about power. I don't care about the game. I don't care about society politics beyond our mission. But I care about her. Saying that part hurts parts of him he hadn't known existed anymore. As if some part of Arturo Manchu had been bound with wire until all feelings stopped and then the wire was unwound and the pain began. Those are my terms. If you can't accept them, I will leave right now. Someone else might have sipped her tea to temporize. Come inside, Arturo. And he did. Four. There was no public trial the next day. Deliberations was the story that went around. Clerks returned to their files. Team two's spies monitored their phones and sources. And team one's soldiers hit the gym. Sal and Grace went to a rooftop restaurant and drank Bellinis. At least nobody's tried to arrest us for, I don't know, whatever, yet. They'll think of something, Grace said. You knew she wouldn't go with us. I suspected. The sun shone very bright in the sky. Sal felt herself burning and adjusted her sunglasses, then moved her chair to place herself more firmly in the shade. Grace's broad-brimmed straw hat cast all the shadow the other woman needed. She wore a sundress and white leather sandals, and her mouth glistened from gloss and alcohol. She looked peach pulp from her lower lip. So why did you help me? Sal asked. Why didn't you try to talk me out of it? I hoped you were wrong. And I was willing to take the chance, but she's brave. As hell. And smart. As hell. I don't know, Grace said, if that's a good choice of words. Sal turned to her sharply. Was that a joke? I make jokes all the time. Could have fooled me. I have a dry sense of humor. Sal let it drop and raised her glass. To Asante. Asante. The crystal rang. Bubbles danced in Sal's mouth, and the sun burned brighter. It was the wrong drink. Somewhere in a better world, they were drinking whiskey. In a better world, there were tears. She reached for Grace's hand, not knowing why she did, and Grace took her hand and held it tight. 
Then she waited in a small, dark room beneath the Vatican, where there were no chairs. The electors gathered, the papal rep and various selectmen, Sansoni present in a non-voting capacity. A fox should have been there, but candidates for the cardinal's office were not allowed to vote on their own selection. Manchu did not know whether this made what he was about to do easier. He could see it both ways. Sansoni watched. Gentlemen, he said, because they all were, and wasn't that the most vicious joke of this whole goddamn situation? We have a decision to make. The orderly led Liam through an open door into the room where Francis lay. She paused the television, some cartoon Liam didn't recognize, an enormous green centipede serpent thing with a mane, menacing a few people hiding behind a hand. Weird. She set the remote on her lap, and he did not look at the place beneath the sheet where her legs should have been. She folded her hands. Liam? He heard so many questions there. Why did it take you so long to come? What's happened to Asante? Nobody will tell me anything, and I'm furious. The sheer fact of my incapacitation doesn't mean I have lost interest in the society's affairs, let alone the will to participate in them. And for all the doctors insist on keeping me under observation, I know there's nothing they can do. I'm as healthy as I'll ever be, and they refuse to listen, perhaps because they're afraid of me going into the courtroom. And yes, I know there's a trial, try to keep up. I deduced it from some damn clue from the mudstain on the nurse's shoe or the scent of lavender in the air, and I wanna know everything. How's Asante holding up in court? What's she been accused of? How is she defending herself, or is she? And beneath all that local stuff, what was it like for you? You came out the other side with all your arms and legs, and you didn't transform to anything weird. But you've lived for years as if there were traps in your mind. And you might be an asshole, but at least tell me. How did you survive? What was it like to love something fiercely and have it break you and keep living? Bye. He said, and meant, I don't know. Look at me, I'm, I'm terrified. I paced outside your room for days because I knew I had to come in here. I knew I had to face you and face the blame you totally deservedly would heap on me. And you had to have seen that because you're too fucking smart to have missed it. And you had to have thought, why won't this asshole just step through the door and tell me the secret? And the answer is, I don't know any secret. Some days I can be my old bastard self again. Some days I feel on top of the world. I'm the king of all internets, ruler of what I survey. I'm a good team player and I save lives. And some days I'm a wreck and I get out of bed because my phone tells me to and I go to the gym because my phone tells me to. And I eat because my phone tells me to and I pray because my phone tells me to. And if I don't, I start thinking about taking a short walk into traffic or opening a vein. And I've had help. Some's God's and I don't even know if you believe in him. Some of that's friends and it's all I can do to remember that they believe in me. And some of that's pills and a shrink and different pills when the old ones stop working. And some days it's still not enough. You want answers. Those are the only ones I can give. I know you think I'm just some wanker who never grew up. But I'm here because it helps to have someone, and I'm here because we're all broken. And I'm here because no one is. I wanted to come by. She gestured to the chair beside the bed. Sit with me? Um, watching cartoons. I've never seen this one before, he said. I'll get lost. You can follow it, she said. It's just started, and you can ask me if you have any questions. I'll do that. He sat. Thanks. She pressed play, and the centipede roared. Five. Asante woke early and showered, 
and wrapped her braids high in her head in a strong, winding knot. She read Dunn. She was learning to hate Dunn again. In her life with Dunn, she had gone through love to hate and out and back. She could draw a wave of Dunn over time, marked with marriage, the birth of children and grandchildren. She wondered about frequencies and amplitudes and red shifts and blue shifts and whether Dunn was going away or coming toward. Someone knocked on the door. Come in. The guards preserved the facade of privacy, averted their eyes as they approached the lock with the same keys Sal had stolen. Kind jailers and wary. No one could quite believe a being of magic had offered her a way out and she refused. She must, they thought, be playing some long game, scheming for eventual triumph. Why would anyone face judgment if they didn't have to? Asante had often wondered what it felt like to process. Now she knew. Two guards marched in front of her through Vatican's sub-basement halls, and two guards marched behind. They did not cuff her or bind her. She was a queen. A courtroom of eyes fixed upon her as she entered. Regards settled over her like a mantle, and she bore it with pride. Shoulders back, love, chin high, eyes clear. The cardinal's seat was empty, and the monsignor's seats as well. The election must have ended. That explained the delay. Her heart ran fast as she took her chair at the table before the bench. Cardinal's selection meant the society had unified behind a candidate, and the Pope concurred. She wondered if dying would hurt. She didn't have to wonder, she'd seen it happen, seen the oracle strangle. But the sophists escaped, tempted. All she knew was that other people looked like they did not like dying. She had no access to their sensoria. She saw reactions, that was all. Muscle contractions, the body reduced to an animal by pain. Perhaps when she died, it would feel as easy as breathing, no matter what contortions her body assumed, meanwhile. A weak argument, but it filled the time. Doors opened behind her. The others turned. She did not give the new official arrivals the satisfaction. The cardinal, too, processed like her, escorted, imprisoned in his own way. His boots tread regular as a horror movie monsters. But the cardinal who revolved into her vision was not the cardinal she expected. Her calm shattered, and rage and fear burned in its place. Monsignor, no, Cardinal Fox rose to the seat. The red did not suit his coloring, but he wore the robes well. They settled from his broad shoulders to his thick legs. He looked like a flattering carving of himself. The audience sat. Asante remained standing. Was that proper protocol? She neither knew nor cared. Archivist, Cardinal Fox said. You have proven your case. Magic is returning. The church must fight this battle with all the weapons at its command. You are one of those weapons, Dr. Asante. We cannot afford to shut you down or break you, but we must stand together against the coming tide. We need discipline, strength, vision. You are guilty of abusing our trust, but the fault lies not with you, but with the society's leadership. Your sentence is at this time commuted. You will remain with us in your capacity as archivist, and you will help us stop the death of the world. All research into the use of magic and all cooperation with magical entities is from this moment banned. We cannot let this rot touch us from within but neither can we afford to remain complacent. We will shift our approach. In the coming weeks, we will forge a new society, a society that will act quickly without mercy to purge evil. The budget and purview of Team One will be expanded. Team Two's surveillance will be stepped up, and archivist Asante, you and Team Three will shift focus. Find me a way to stop magic. Find me a way to kill it. 
He raised his hand. We all have work to do. Let's go. Manchu was halfway up the winding stair from the archives to the Vatican when Asante caught him by the shoulder and thrust him against the wall. Her fingers were strangler tight around his arm. Do you have any idea what you've done? He had not run after the sentencing, but he had walked fast. He had spent all yesterday working out a speech for when she came for him. He'd thrown out six drafts and started again. This team needs you, he had planned to start, and I need you, and for all your high-minded ideals, no one can do the work you can. Yes, Fox is a jerk, and yes, he'll lead the society in the wrong direction, but since when have we cared about what the Cardinals think? What matters is we'll be free. I had to, was all he got out. All you had to do was let me do what had to be done, you infuriating, frustrating, self-righteous, moral man. You priest. The spit of the pea landed on his cheek. We need you. He had never seen her this mad before, not after Peru, not after Glasgow, not ever. It would have been wonderful like a summer storm if he weren't the target. The rest of the society can rot, the world hangs in the balance, and it needs you. We were supposed to get a moderate cardinal, a papal appointee. Hell, it could have been you. I thought... She let his shoulder go and drew back disgusted. After Belfast, the conservatives were too strong. Unless you threw me under the bus. That was to be the deal. I go under, the radicals get the election, and there's enough political will to fix things around here, and then maybe, just fucking maybe, the world survives. He had never heard her swear before. And you messed it up. Don't try to deny it. You did this. You made the deal. Fox and throne for my survival. We make compromises. Manchu straightened his shirt front and straightened his collar. In the field, we choose who lives and who dies, what risks we take and which we don't. You made this the field, so I chose. And I saved you so you can save us, so we can save the world. The echoes faded. Didn't you listen to a single thing I said in court? The echoes had bleached the anger from her voice. We can't stay the same and survive. He reached across the gulf between them to her shoulder. He might as well have touched a statue. She did not look at him. Get out of my library. He let her go. She said nothing more. He climbed the stairs. You too, he heard her call down the stairs toward the door he had not heard open, to Grace, to Sal, to Liam, who of course were listening. All of you out. I need to be alone. Epilogue. Rome was shit at handicap accessibility. Frances Haddad wheeled down the sidewalk, glanced over her shoulder, and saw nobody following. Not that she had many options for shaking a tail if one existed. She was relying mostly on the fact that the society didn't expect much from her these days because she couldn't walk, and because what was she? An assistant to a woman whose wings had been clipped. A scholar, not a doer, whose brief field experience ended poorly. She turned down a narrow alley. At the far end stood a shuttered shop, its door cell blissfully level with the walk. Watchmaker, had the sign over the door, but she couldn't read the name. Cobblestone sucked. Gross word, she'd always thought, considering, but it fit. Cobbles weren't made for people with wheels. The chair was sturdy, and she kept a good grip. The last few months had developed her grip and arms in a way she would have said before she would have killed for. But she still worried she might miss a gap between stones that was exactly the wrong shape, and the wheel would bind and pitch her onto her face in the street. She had grown better than she had ever wanted to be at solving this particular puzzle, and soon she reached the watchmaker's shop. Leaning forward, she caught the door handle, engaged the brakes, pulled open the door, and entered. This would get easier, she expected, with practice. She'd already grown used to the many pieces of the motion, blending them into a single thought, open and enter. 
The door closed and left the room in near darkness. Late afternoon light snuck between the boards nailed over the windows, and dust cohered that light to solid striped beams, which fell to touch the broken floor with gold. There was a table in the center of the room, and a single candle on the table. And across the table stood Asante. I don't think I was followed, Francis said. I don't think I was either. Asante leaned into the table. I don't know how we'll do this in the long term. We'll manage, Francis said. We have to. Asante took a matchbook from her purse. Okay, there should probably be some kind of ceremony, but I'd rather leave that for the priests if it's all the same to you. No argument here. She lit a match off her thumbnail and lit the candle. It cast shadows of itself. Welcome to the first meeting of the new Team Four. Francis waited for a gong to ring or a car to crash out on the street for the voices of a heavenly choir. Asante seemed to be waiting too. Just us? Francis asked. At first? Don't worry. Francis's head whipped left, then right. Her eyes darted, searching for the source of the new voice. A man emerged from the shadows in the corner. Shadows not deep or dark enough to hide a man. Shadows that seconds before had been empty. Francis did not recognize the voice, but she recognized the man. She'd seen his picture before, in Sal's file. I think our numbers will grow soon enough, Harry said. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Realm's new podcast, Overleaper, stars BAFTA and Emmy-nominated actress Thora Birch as both American soldier Audrey Beach and her doppelganger called The Overleaper. All of Audrey Beach's training could never have prepared her for her latest top-secret mission, where her own doppelganger from another universe has locked her up and left her to die. To make things worse, The Overleaper isn't just here to take her place, but is on a mission to assassinate the President of the United States. Overleaper is a thrilling espionage filled with twists and turns, as Audrey must race against time and herself to defend the nation and protect her good name. Be sure to listen to Overleaper wherever you get your podcasts, or visit realm.fm for more information. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El Motar, Mur Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Exe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolihi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.